Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha. Welcome to Island Conversations. You may hear us as a podcast anytime, wherever you get podcasts, or kwxx.com or b97hawaii.com, or on the radio on the Big Island of Hawaii, Sunday mornings on kwxx and on b97b93, and the following Friday on kpua 670 a.m. in Hilo. Today I have the pleasure of talking with some people who represent one of the state's largest healthcare providers, and that is Kaiser Permanente, which at last count had around 254,000 people who are members of Kaiser Permanente, because I want to get an update on the Kaiser Permanente approach to COVID-19. So we're joined this morning by Kate Roach, who's the Chief Nurse Executive for Kaiser Permanente. Aloha, Kate. Aloha, Sherry. We're also joined by Larry Shima, who runs Kaiser Permanente's lab and is also on Oahu with Kate. Good morning. Aloha, Larry. Morning. Aloha. We're also joined by Lloyd Tanaka, who is the Hawaii Island Manager for Kaiser. Good morning. Aloha, Lloyd. Aloha, Sherry. Where are you located, Lloyd, by the way? We are located um, in Kailua right by the Tesoro at Honokohau. Our corner location and our Hilo location is next to the Hilo Medical Center and a Waimea location in the Parker Red Center, which currently we have shut down to focus on the care at our two major hubs on the island. Oh, well, that's good information. I had no idea that the Waimea location was temporarily closed. Where do you personally make your office, Lloyd? Here in the Kona Medical Office building. Okay. First question is not really related to COVID, but a couple of years ago, there was a somewhat alarming email about Kaiser's financial shortfall that ended up being widely publicized, and that caused some concern that Kaiser would not be able to continue in Hawaii or that you'd lose medical professionals or not be able to give the kind of patient care that I assume you want to give. So what is the status of Kaiser in the state of Hawaii? Kate, I believe you might be able to answer that question. Yes, Sherry. So Kaiser really, you know, as you know, we've been a part of Hawaii's health care for more than 60 years, and we want to be here for another 60. COVID-19 has had a huge effect on the state's economy, and we're not immune to that. COVID-19 has really had a major effect on health care organizations across the United States and literally around the world. We are in the process of evaluating our situation, you know, where we stand with members because we know a lot of people have become unemployed was the impact of that and like many organizations we're going to have to really work more efficiently and effectively but we have a team across the region and we're working with our national office to really identify where we sit as we kind of evolve through this pandemic and are positioning ourselves to be here into the future. Well, I know that what you said is certainly true, that all healthcare organizations are affected. The email I'm referring to came out a couple of years ago, well before COVID was something even on the horizon. So that's what I'm referring to. Was Kaiser in financial trouble in advance in a way that could affect patient care in Hawaii, particularly exacerbated by COVID-19? 
And I would say, yes, you know, it's possible that our footprint could change as we go forward. We're evaluating all of that. We started that evaluation. I joined the organization last December, so that evaluation is underway. Uh, COVID-19's impact is now being sort of incorporated into that evaluation. So we're working to try to re-evaluate where we are in terms of resources across the Hawaiian Islands. You know, our plan is to be here going forward. So we understand that although the evaluation prior to COVID, you know, clearly was uh, challenging to us, COVID has really impacted us in a way that no one could foresee. So I would say we're still in the process of making those recommendations to reevaluate where we need to be from a footprint and, you know, make those decisions going forward. So there's more to come on that. We do not have a definitive answer. As an example, Lloyd mentioned the fact that the Waimea Clinic has been closed during COVID, and we have other clinics on Oahu and Maui that have been closed as we've tried to centralize our resources to respond to COVID-19. We're in the process of evaluating those satellite clinics and making determinations about what will reopen and when going forward, and that's all part of a larger evaluation. All right. Thank you very much. What I wanted to talk about this morning really was COVID-19, and I'd like to talk about both testing and about COVID patients who may be Kaiser patients and what you've seen there. So let's start with testing. Kate Roche, you're the chief nurse executive. For Kaiser patients who may be concerned about COVID-19, talk about what Kaiser does relative to testing, because as you know, here on the Big Island, we have a number of community testing sites that anybody can go to, but I am guessing that most Kaiser patients would turn to Kaiser first. So what are the criteria that people need to meet for Kaiser to give a test, or should they be going to the community testing sites? We actually have swabbing stations that people can go and get tested if they feel that they've been at risk. The questions we ask are the questions that I think are being asked uh, literally of patients across the country. Do you have a fever? Have you had a cough, particularly a persistent dry cough? Have you traveled outside the country? Have you been exposed to someone with COVID-19? And if the answer to those questions are yes, those patients can be screened for COVID-19. As you know, some patients are asymptomatic with COVID-19. Some have mild symptoms. We have seen symptoms across the continuum. So for those patients who are not seeing a lot of symptoms or, or any symptoms, they have the opportunity to come to a swabbing station and to get swabbed. And I can let Larry talk more about the testing component, but the criteria is pretty straightforward and consistent. For those people that come into our facilities, we screen for temperature and we screen for those questions making sure that our facilities are safe as patients come into the organization. We want to identify those individuals up front as they access both our clinics and our acute care facilities. It's interesting. You mentioned the asymptomatic patients, and that certainly is a concern for everybody now that we've heard that around 40% of the people who've gotten COVID in other places have been asymptomatic. You know, it's hard to completely judge by Hawaii because our case count is pretty low compared to the rest of the country, but interesting. So, Larry Shima, what kind of a test does Kaiser do? Is it the standard PCR test that we've heard so much about, or what? The short answer to that question is yes, it it is for PCR testing. PCR is a type of nucleic acid testing. Nucleic acid testing tests for DNA and or RNA of the COVID virus. There's many different types of nucleic acid testing. So this is a group of tests that is monitored and reported to the Department of Health. 
and DOH reports that out daily, primarily to the media and to the public. So we have five analyzers in the laboratory, manufactured by three vendors, and they have different nucleic acid testing technology with them. So the reason why we have three different platforms is because we are on allocation and the supply chain is not reliable. One of the vendors shut down, we have two other vendors to rely on. So we've been doing the juggling act to support the testing for our members. To date, the state of Hawaii has reported that there have been at least 116,000 tests conducted. How many tests has Kaiser done in its labs? So we've processed over 15,000 tests at the Kaiser Laboratory, and we've done 13,000 at the Moanalo Medical Center. In the beginning, we were sending quite a bit of tests out because we just didn't have the supply or the kits. Since then, we've internalized 100%, so we do all of the testing at the Moanalo Medical Center. What's your percent positive? So right now, as of this morning, we're running close to 1.4%. Yeah, that's similar to what the state is reporting. Well, yeah, actually, 1.4% is very consistent with what the state is reporting overall. So it sounds like Kaiser's percentage of tests is right on. Although lately, as you probably know, with the kind of spikes they've had, particularly on Oahu, the percent of positive that the State Department of Health has talked about has gone up to some days 4%, which is way higher than what we've normally had. But you've said that Kaiser's numbers are part of the State Department of Health report, so you're in there. Yes, we report to them daily. Okay. Most of the tests that people are familiar with when you go to these drive-through testings, somebody, a medical professional, takes a very long swab and sticks it up your nose, and it's kind of uncomfortable. But I discovered that Kaiser allows patients to actually do their own nasal swab, and that is very different from most of what I've heard. How can you be sure the patient is doing the swab correctly? Because clearly nobody wants to actually stick a nasal swab up their nose voluntarily. So how do you know they're getting to where the material is that could be the infectious or the telling RNA or DNA that you've spoken of, Ms. Roche? So the swabs themselves have a line so that the patient knows how far the swab needs to be inserted. We actually offer that um, because, you know, the test itself is capable of being done, you know, alone. We do have patients that feel more comfortable doing it themselves than having others do it. We also have patients that are very uncomfortable and will step in and do that. Part of the reason to do self-swabbing is the patient can do it, you know, literally a drive-up in their car. There's limited exposure to staff. It conserves our personal protective equipment because we don't have to use as much if individuals are doing their own. And so it's an opportunity for us to conserve on both sides and keep the patient safe and the staff safe by doing that. So that that is uh, what we've been offering. And, you know, we do have patients that decline, and then we'll do the swabbing. Interesting. But again, how do you know the patient really sticks the swab up there enough and that you're getting it? Are you... Is that, is that what you're doing for all your tests now, that you let the patient do, them, do it themselves unless they don't want to? We have some areas where the nurses are doing the swabbing, and some of the equipment does require different types of samples, and so it, it gets into the science of how the swab has to be obtained. But for the general screening swabs, they can do those swabs themselves. I'll let Lloyd chime in. 
most of the symptomatic patients, we have to get the nasopharyngeal swabs, which is the one that goes pretty deep into the nose. And those are for acute cases coming through, say, like the emergency room, where we have options for the asymptomatics or the pre-op kind of patients that uh, we serve. The only other thing I was going to add is each swabbing station has some clear directions for the patient. As Kate had mentioned, there is a mark how far they should be going in. And we have a nurse outside of the member's vehicle window observing them during the swab. So, yeah, I think that's another way we monitor that the samples are done per the instructions. I'd like to move on to patients who actually have COVID-19 and find out how Kaiser addresses that. But before we leave testing, what else should the public know, Ms. Roche? So we actually, because of our laboratory capabilities, and I'm going to brag about them because the lab has really stayed on top of this, getting both equipment and tech kits in, and has allowed us the opportunity to screen every patient that is scheduled for surgery. So if you are scheduled for a surgical procedure or a procedure, we actually uh, test you 72 hours prior. For those patients that are done emergently, we do a test prior to the procedure itself, so we have that information. We test all our labor and delivery moms so that we have the information that they are either, you know, COVID negative or COVID positive, so we know that going into the procedure. So that's been in place. That's why the swabbing stations at our outpatient facilities have increased in volume, and we've increased our staff to accommodate for that so that patients are instructed to be swabbed prior to the procedure so that we have that information really to protect our staff and to protect the patient and others in the environment as we bring patients into the facility. You know, I'd also like to mention, before we started talking for the recording, Larry happened to mention, we're recording this after Hurricane Douglas sort of bypassed us. And on Monday last, the State Department of Health noted that most of the labs, including the state lab and most of the private labs, did not do full testing or full reading of tests over the weekend because of Hurricane Douglas. But Larry, am I right that Kaiser Lab actually was open all weekend and continuing testing? Correct. Congratulations. We have a 24-7 facility that COVID testing is always available. That's good. That's good. And one more question. Um, Kate Roche, you mentioned you test all pregnant moms who are coming in for delivery. Have you had any moms deliver who were COVID positive? Because I'm curious, what about the baby if the mom was positive? So has that circumstance occurred? Yes, we've had a few. It's been very low, to be honest with you. We've had a few, and we have obviously taken the precautions that we've needed to take to manage those moms through the delivery. It has not affected the baby. So the baby does not have COVID-19 when he or she is born? Correct. Wow, that's pretty good. That's very nice. Oh, and that's got to be so difficult, though, for the mom, because then are they shielded from the baby when the baby is born then? Yes, they are, unfortunately. That's the downside. The moms and babies are separated as the mom is monitored, obviously, post-delivery because they don't want increased exposure to the baby. So we have had a, a situation or two where we've had to have another caregiver, a family member that is a caregiver that really is caring for the baby while the mom is basically, you know, quarantined until she recovers from COVID-19. As I said, it's a rarity. It's a very low volume. 
That has to be so emotionally difficult for the mother to not be able to be with her baby because, as you know, bonding for the mother and baby is just so important in those first days. So, wow, I'm glad to hear it's a rare occurrence. We know that, and we, you know, obviously that's something that we're quite concerned about, but we're obviously primarily concerned about the health of the mom and the health of the baby. And so, um, you know, not, not minimizing the bonding because it is critical as well, but we err on the side of safety for the baby and the mom. But I will say, given the pandemic, our families have been quite understanding and other family members have stepped up and, you know, we've used technology to FaceTime with moms and, you know, we've encouraged them to do that as they've been discharged to home because many of them have gone home and then have quarantined at home. I want to say it's one or two that I'm aware of, so it's a very, very small number, fortunately. And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Today we're learning about the Kaiser Permanente approach to COVID-19 with Lab Director Larry Shima, Chief Nurse Executive Kate Roche, and Hawaii Island Manager Lloyd Tanaka. Next week, we're taking a break from politics and COVID, and we're talking animals with Ann Goody of the Three Ring Ranch Animal Sanctuary. It's in Kona. It's a state-certified animal sanctuary. Before we learn about some of the COVID-19 Kaiser patients and what Kaiser has learned from them, a word from our sponsor, KTA Superstores. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce, our mountain Apple brand is all local, so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. And before we return to our conversation about Kaiser Permanente and COVID, a reminder that we need to have our ballots into the county elections office by next Saturday. Best bet is take it to a post office Monday or Tuesday. After that, you should definitely use one of the voter service centers or the drop boxes. You may find a detail on that. Go to kwxx.com and search for Voter Service Center, and you may still register at the Voter Service Centers and vote. Now back to our discussion. For any Kaiser patients who do test positive for COVID-19, what is Kaiser's protocol for treating or caring for them, understanding that most COVID patients do not actually need hospitalization? For the patients that don't need hospitalization, how does Kaiser address that, Ms. Roche? Each patient is treated based on symptoms, so the symptoms are managed. You know, it's a virus, and so some go home, and there's really no additional treatment in terms of prescription medications that they need to take. Some do, some don't. A lot of it is respiratory management, so they may be given medications to help keep their airways clear, but many go home with no additional supplement. It's really more about, you know, resting and recovering through a period of time. But each patient is assessed and has their own individual plan of care, and we've developed instructions for them so that there's consistency. Our physicians have checked in on those patients. So if you're a patient that is at home recovering from COVID-19, you have a physician, whether it's your primary care or infectious disease physician, that is calling to check in on you to make sure that you're progressing well and that your condition isn't changing for the worst because if they are, they want to obviously interrupt that and treat as quickly as possible. So a lot of monitoring that goes on in uh, communicating with those patients through their recovery period. 
The next question I have that several people have asked about really is a neighbor island question. And since we're here on the Big Island, Lloyd, I don't know if you can address this. But if you have a patient here on the Big Island who does have to be hospitalized, if they're a Kaiser patient, would they be generally hospitalized at one of our hospitals, meaning Hilo Medical Center, Kona Community Hospital, North Hawaii Community Hospital, which is a Queens facility, or would they be sent to a specific Kaiser Hospital, which would be either on Oahu or at Maui Memorial? Lloyd, are you the right person to answer that? Yes, we are leveraging our community hospitals on the island um, to deliver the care with COVID, you know, exposure and movement of patients is a sensitive issue. So we would definitely partner with our community hospital and our infectious disease department will be in contact with community hospital. So basically what you're saying, if one of us here on the Big Island gets COVID, we would be hospitalized at Hilo Medical Center or North Hawaii Hospital or Kona Community Hospital? Yes, that's correct. And of course, with COVID, all healthcare facilities are partnering in this. So the resources of each area and each hospital will be monitored to determine the care also. Kaiser is then comfortable that all of our three island hospitals have appropriate number of intensive care unit beds and they have enough ventilators should that be needed? Yes, that's correct. Well, that's good. By the way, just as an aside, I did speak with flight nurse Lori Cannon from Hawaii Life Flight, and they do transport COVID-positive patients. They have protocols in place as well, just for anybody who might wonder about that if for any reason somebody did have to be transported to Oahu. Now, Lloyd, the state has had, at this point, more than 1,700 cases of COVID-19 in total. And by the time this airs in five days, probably the number will be higher. Can you share how many Kaiser COVID-19 patients there have been? Yes. So for Hawaii Island, for KP members, we've had 12, which is roughly 10% of this total. The total for the Big Island is 117. And overall, like you shared, 1,700 in the state. Kaiser has 257, which is just about 14%, which is running similar to what the Big Island numbers are. Okay, so Kaiser statewide is at 257 patients. Whoa. Just the whole magnitude of COVID-19 is so interesting. And I know you can't talk about specific patients, but I think I recall that the local news TV stations had reported that there was at least one very seriously ill COVID patient at the Kaiser Hospital on Oahu who was like in intensive care for six weeks or something. Am I right about that? Correct. And he recovered? Yes, he did. Did very, very well. Yay. That's got to be pretty tough. I believe that the news report said he lost more than 70 pounds just from lying in bed for so long. So it sounds to me like when people have COVID and then they no longer have COVID, I can't actually say the word recovered because there still is a lot of recovery to do, is there not? There is. I think for those patients who are hospitalized, particularly those for extended period of time, if you think about it, it happens to those who are hospitalized for other reasons as well. But if you're in the intensive care unit and you're not mobile, you know, just the fact that you're immobile, laying in bed, 
there's a lot of muscle wasting that happens. No matter what you do with nutritional support, it's not the same as someone who's up and about and ambulating and taking normal nutrition and even the normal activities of daily living. So post-COVID for someone that's been in a hospital, particularly in the intensive care unit for an extended period of time, there's a lot of you know, physical rehabilitation, if you will, and just rebuilding muscle mass and rebuilding your skills around activities of daily living and your competencies around that or confidence around that because you have been in bed for so long. You know, our muscles degenerate, unfortunately, very, very quickly. And we do bedside range of motion and all of those things, but it does take its toll, obviously. It's obviously a critical illness over a long period of time. We've had a couple of patients like that that have been here for a long time in the intensive care unit that have done very well, and they've experienced similar things. We had had a, a patient that went home that was quite elderly and did very, very well and left our ICU, went to our med surge unit, and was discharged to home. Yay. Those stories are very nice. When you say elderly, I've asked Department of Health about this because they call elderly anybody over 60. Could you narrow down what you mean by elderly, how old this elderly patient was? Yeah, this particular patient was over 80. That's what I consider more in the range of elderly than 60, (laughs) to be honest. It's all relative. Yeah, when I asked State Department of Health if they could break it down, they said no, because many, many people I know who are between, let's say, 60 and 80 kind of don't consider themselves in the, quote, elderly category. And so they're not really sure if all these elderly admonitions really apply to them. But I know that everybody I know is actually being pretty careful, wearing masks, doing all that. What else should Kaiser patients know about the Kaiser approach to COVID-19, Ms. Roche? From my perspective... From the clinical care delivery perspective, Hawaii, although, you know, we've obviously seen cases, we have seen low volume compared to some of the hospitals on the mainland. We have the advantage of working in a large system who's had experiences in regions across the country, and our teams have been in contact with them on a regular basis. And so I think we've had the advantage of a national team who's seeing sort of the national picture, and we've been able to learn from some of the things that they've seen in high volume areas and adapt very quickly to those things. So although we've seen very low volume, which we've been very grateful for, we're prepared because we've been in partnership with our national partners, really putting systems in place to support patients if a high volume need is there and we've planned for that. Again, very grateful that the volume is what it is, but we prepare for, you know, the unexpected and we're able to exchange conversations between our infectious disease and our emergency operations staff and our laboratory staff and our clinicians. We've been able to adopt protocols from the national perspective quickly in order to continue to respond to this evolving pandemic. I really appreciate that. That sounds positive. And Kate Roche, you mentioned some of the specific instances you've observed as you've had patients. Is there anything else special that you have observed about COVID-19 as you've tested or seen patients that would be helpful or interesting for people to know? You know, what we saw initially across the country is early intubation of patients that came into the hospitals. What we're learning and what we're seeing is that there's more of a wait and see rather than move to intubation quickly, and we've been able to manage some of those patients without having to intubate them by doing aggressive pulmonary care absent intubation. 
And I think that's something that has evolved across the country, and certainly we've adapted that. As I said, we've had very low volume of those patients, but we've done a lot of things with partnering with our respiratory therapists and our infectious disease and our pulmonologists, adapting protocols that have been developed from high volume experiences on the mainland, which has been really helpful for us. But I think that's the change that we're seeing is intensive care patients were not rushing to intubate as quickly as I think we did as the pandemic began. And I think the fact that we've had so much ability to test early screening, et cetera, has put us in a good position to know if our patients are at risk as they come in. It's been an opportunity for us to really help protect our patients, our community, our staff better than if we didn't have those capabilities. Kate, I have heard that if people do have to be intubated, sometimes they aren't easily able to get off that. Am I right about that? So it's really good if you can do what you can to keep them from that particular stage of treatment? That's correct. You know, I want to be clear that if a patient's requiring intubation, we're going to intubate the patient. But I think what we saw early on was more quickly focusing on intubation. And now I think as the country has learned about COVID and has seen it evolve, we're really working with our respiratory partners and our physicians and nurses to make sure that if we can aggressively manage those patients and maintain a stable pulmonary state and we can avoid intubation, you're right. Once you intubate somebody, there's other risks that are involved, so you would like to not have to do that. So we have found that we've successfully been able to not have to intubate and they've been managed really successfully and have done well. That's great. Is there anything else that any of you would like to add before we say aloha, Lloyd Tanaka? You know, as Kate had shared, we have the fortunate um, national enterprise to learn from. For us here at the Kona Clinic, primary care leadership early on with COVID, we were meeting daily, developing processes that can best be efficient, safe for our staff and our members. Um, And one of the area is our virtual care. We really have a robust virtual care offering, uh, which still provides good, effective care for our members and safety for our staff. So I think that's one of the things that we are very proud of is developing that robust virtual care. And the last thing I wanted to say to our Big Island community is really to thanking each and every one for their action, you know, to flatten the curve. Uh, This has allowed our staff to remain healthy and care for those that are truly sick. And also to continue to wear the mask, practice social distancing, and washing hands frequently. I think these three things, if everyone were to do this, I think we can manage through COVID and our numbers reflect that I think as a state, We've done really well in complying to the three things I just shared. I have to wonder if there's anybody in this state who has not heard that message, and I can't figure out why they don't all do it. Thank you so much, Lloyd, for being with us. Larry Shima, before we say aloha, you are the lab director. Anything you'd like to say in closing? It's just what Kate and Lloyd said. We work as a team, both nationally and locally. And that's really an advantage in terms of learnings and reacting to the situation. also want to thank everybody out there. I know we have news reporting that people are not wearing masks, but for the majority of the people, I think they are wearing masks. That's the reason why our curve is low. We thank all of you for doing that because, you know, we have limited testing capabilities and 
we want to make sure that we apply the testing to the people that really need it. So I want to thank the public for listening to the Department of Health. Thank you. Thank you so much, Larry Shima and Kate Roche, Chief Nurse Executive. Before we say aloha, anything you'd like to add? I would just like to commend our staff. I think they've been heroic in um, really responding to this pandemic. I've been a nurse for a long time, and, you know, healthcare professionals step in when others step out of these kinds of crises. We've watched our staff really step in. They've been incredibly resilient. As changes have happened, they've responded very, very quickly to those changes and have adapted protocols moving forward, which has been really positive. And I want to echo what both Lloyd and Larry have said. You know, we want to thank the public for harboring with us and helping us through this pandemic. Wearing a mask, washing your hands, social distancing will really help to effectively slow and stop the spread of COVID-19. To me, the state of Hawaii has really responded very well, and we see that in low-volume COVID across the state. Thank you. Kate Roche, Chief Nurse Executive, Larry Shima, Laboratory Director, and Lloyd Tanaka, who is the Hawaii Island Manager for Kaiser. Thank you so much for your time. Aloha. 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 And thank you for being with us for Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Brack, and until next time, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahui ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.